0: This week on Counter Stories, we talk with my fraternity brother and founder of the Juror Project, Will Snowden. Will Snowden graduated from the University of Minnesota and will be talking to us about the importance of serving on jurors and the racial patterns that persist in our legal system. This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dangerous Group and executive director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora.
1: I'm Don Eubanks, associate professor in the School of Social Work at Metropolitan State University and cultural consultant.
2: And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group.
0: And Luz Maria Frias could not be with us today, but we have a very special guest, um, the founder of the Juror Project out of Louisiana, Will Snowden. Will, go ahead and introduce yourself.
3: Hello, everybody. My name is Will Snowden. Really excited to be here and talk about the work uh, that I've been doing with the Juror Project. So here in Minnesota,
0: in particular in the Twin Cities right now, we have been embroiled, enthralled in the juror selection process of the Derek Chauvin trial and in Uh, As we were watching coverage, I saw a video of my good friend and fraternity brother uh, from the University of Minnesota kind of detailing the importance of jury selection and serving on jurors. And I thought it'd be a really important time for us to not only uh, learn a little bit more about Uh, the complexities and the disparities and the issues racially regarding juror selection, but also um, to help to put some of the current work in the context. So, so Will, can you tell us a little bit about the juror project and how um, this particular juror process in the Chauvin trial is, is particularly interesting and important.
3: Definitely. So I used to be a public defender in New Orleans for, I was a public defender for five years. And one of the things that I noticed regularly was that there was a lack of diversity on our juries when we would be going to trial. And not just diversity of race, but also diversity of perspective. And what was frustrating for me as a public defender was thinking about how it was my role, my responsibility to fight and represent for the person that had the privilege of representing, but being in a boxing ring that really just was not fair. And so what I realized was that the types of questions that were being asked the way that we were summonsing jurors, the way that we were disenfranchising certain people, and even the community perspective were all contributing to this lack of diversity in our jury trials, and that lack of diversity was creating a lack of fairness in our criminal legal system. So I started the Juror Project with two main goals. First was to increase diversity of jury panels, and second is to improve people's perspective of jury duty, because I'm sure we all know, and perhaps some of us are guilty of it ourselves, uh, have actually tried to get out of jury duty. Right. Thinking that it is not an important civic duty that we need to partake in and really shirk the responsibility of being involved in the process uh, of, uh, of the criminal legal system and the process of the trial. So with the Jura Project, it's a passion project of mine. I give presentations in the community, uh, most popularly at churches, neighborhood associations, high schools, law schools, colleges, uh, really any gathering of a community. Um, I go give a presentation about. Uh, The problems of our criminal legal system and then demonstrating how jury service can actually be part of the conversation to improve and increase the fairness of our criminal legal system as well.
0: And and this is particularly important. There's many folks who've been watching the jury selection process in the Chauvin trial um, in particular because of a questionnaire that has questions on it that are, one, new to many folks who may even be aware of the jury questionnaire as a part of the process, but then also uh, the kind of litmus test for Black Lives Matter or any consciousness or affiliation around it and its impact on serving on a jury for which race and consciousness of of racial impacts is an important skill set to be able to, to have, um, and the complications is, it's been seating juries uh, or jurors, um, who have any kind of knowledge engagement or critical consciousness of, uh, of that movement. So, to, so talk to us a little bit about some of the things that you've seen in this process that has have been alarming to you or, or, or that stand out for you.
3: Yeah. A couple of things that stood out, uh, at least a couple of questions from the the juror questionnaire, Uh, that you mentioned, uh, particularly three different types of questions that caught our eye. Um, One question was gauging and asking potential jurors whether or not they supported the Black Lives Matter movement. A kind of a follow-up question to that was, did you participate in a demonstration last summer? And if you did, did you have a sign in that demonstration? And if you had a sign, what did the sign say? And so really kind of zooming in to try to understand uh, what that particular particular person may have been representing at that demonstration, I um, thought was, was really interesting as information to gather. Um, and in the larger context, when we zoom out, the question about Black Lives Matter in a juror questionnaire, or even during voir dire, and voir dire is that term we use to describe the conversation between the attorneys and the potential jurors, asking them questions, there's a case out of California in, in Contra Costa County where a prosecutor asked questions about a potential juror supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. And they were and that juror said they did support the Black Lives Matter movement, and that juror was removed from the jury. But the appellate court said that was a legitimate question to ask, and that was a legi- legitimate um, reason for the prosecutor to remove that person from the jury. So then what it calls into question is we need to be more critical of our criminal legal system. We need to be more critical of the design of, uh, of our voir dire process and our jury selection process. Because if, six, if the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution means anything, you know, it says you have a right to a jury of your peers. What that should mean is that you have a right to have people on your jury who believe in. The Black Lives Matter movement, just as much as you have a right to have people on your jury that live in the blue lot, li- believe in the Blue Lives Matter phrase. I don't think it's a movement, but the phrase or the idea, because as a system, if we can have two people at opposite ends of the ideological spectrum, and those two people can come to agreement on a verdict, as a community, we can have more faith in the outcome of that trial. But what we have is when people articulate. Opinions that are critical of criminal legal system or critical of law enforcement, they get removed from the jury, right? And that is that is, in theory, contrary to what the Sixth Amendment affords, uh, people having the accused people having a right to a jury of their peers. When really, it's not a jury of your peers; it's a jury of a select amount of peers that that fit a particular framework.
1: This, you know, this whole situation. Um, I think, as a result of historical historical relationships that we, as members of communities of color, the American Indian community, and others, have had this tenuous uh, relationship with law enforcement, uh, with a lot of the bias that um, that you know, uh, I think uh, there's discussion. That's been happening since this January 6th at the Capitol, and now there's all this looking into how uh, white nationalists and this white supremacy kind of mental um, uh, way of living and thought has permeated through the police departments and other, you know, army, through institutions. I mean, just, just look at our history. I mean, who made up, you know, the Ku Klux Klan? Uh, who made up the juries of the South? They were members of the Ku Klux Klan. They were white supremacists. And for me, to to um, again, have to listen to the dominant culture, tell us that anything that has to do with reckoning and correcting those kind of historical discrepancies, that we have been battling against our entire lives and, and we have to argue it in this arena. And I understand totally what you're saying, Will, but from my perspective as a, as, as a uh, Native American, African-American male in uh, Minnesota, that whole thing is biased. It's It's all gamed. It's all tilted to ensure that the status quo remains the same. Am I wrong in that interpretation?
3: I think, it's, I think it's appropriate. I don't think you're wrong in your interpretation. I think it's appropriate to be critical of the system that we have inherited, right? And understanding the manners in which it was originally designed to realize that it was never designed to work for people of color, right? It has a history and a foundation of being designed to control people of color, to ensure they don't have access to power. They don't have access to opportunity. But then the question becomes, how do we change a criminal legal system that we know has not been designed for us and has been built upon the notions and the, the myth of white supremacy that benefits people that, um, the, that has the, a, a privilege for white people coming through the system that looks different than people of color? How do we change that system? And so we think about incremental change versus kind of uh, quick sweeping change, and there, and there has to be a tiered approach. We think about an analogy I heard when we think about uh, construction on a freeway. If you have a three-lane three, a three lane freeway, you don't shut down the whole freeway. You change things one lane at a time. And as I think about we approach the criminal legal system, if I can have conversations about how we change our jury system, that's that's not even a lane. That's that's a maybe a shoulder, right? Hmm. But thinking about if I can get people to understand the access to the power that the system gives people and the opportunity in that jury deliberation room, there's a lot of opportunity to bring our voices to access that power. And you talked about juries in the South. We talked. About, you talked a little bit about um, historically what juries have looked like. when we've seen either controversial verdicts or Um, Even just the notion of all white juries, I can't help but think about the the Emmett Till case, right? We think about this, this notion of jury nullification. So let me first define jury nullification. Jury nullification is a constitutional premise that says if you as a juror believe that the government is abusing their power, you can exercise your vote as a check on that power. So let me give you an example person is charged with possession of marijuana and the jurors listen to the case the prosecution proves beyond a reasonable doubt that that person did in fact possess marijuana and it was a, and it was illegal to do so if the jury believes it is an abuse of the government's power to send that person to prison they could vote not guilty even though the person is technically according to the law even though that they're technically guilty the jury could vote not guilty now, when we have conversations about jury nullification and we have conversations about access to power through the jury box, I think it's important for the community to know about jury nullification. And I've been accused of, of uh, in, in encouraging people to get on a jury and automatically vote not guilty for people charged with armed robbery, for people charged with murder, for people charged with rape. <laughs> and my... My kind of pushback to that is say, hey, that's exactly not what I'm saying. But if you want to talk about when jury nullification has been used hmm. to let murderers off, right, let's look at the all white jury in the Emmett Till case, right? Let's, and then you want to talk about how that case even became up in the first place was because of a lie, right? And that woman, however many years later, admitted that Emmett Till never whistled at her or talked to her or whatever it was. You know, nobody complained that jury notification let those, those two white men go for killing Emmett Till. And so we have to understand, and you're absolutely right, that this design of the criminal legal system and the design of the jury has so frequently been designed to only allow certain individuals to have access to that power. I think it's important to name how that access to power has been limited. And while we are designing a new system, still understanding currently what we can do today to access the powers as it is is currently afforded to people in the community.
2: I think also one thing is that people just assume that the prosecution is going to do the right thing by what the community thinks should be the right thing. Um, So, you know, I, I think that's an important part to talk about when we say this, this su- survey went out to everybody. Um, the prosecution, the folks working on that team, knew that these. this is what was going on. They really, they didn't have a problem with it. And so as we talk about fair jury selection, we need to also know know that the prosecution doesn't always have the best interest of really the, you know, the communities that they don't understand, i.e. communities of color.
3: That's right.
0: I think that there's a very important, um, there, man, there's a, there's a couple of things that were said here that are just blowing my mind. Um, The first one is this point that comes up a lot when we go back and we try to redress or surface racialized patterns. Um, uh, Will, you, you, you talk about the fact that when, when these tools, when these, these approaches are used uh, to benefit dominant society, to benefit white society, um, it's fine, but let Somebody else suggests that they use the same exact tools that are guaranteed and and protected under law. All of a sudden, there's an interrogation or or an investigation about its fairness. I think this is an important thing to pull out here, especially in a situation where um, we are seeing that a critical consciousness is deemed um, it, 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 it is is put forward as if you are incapable of making an impartial, law based decision in a case. I think it's a very dangerous um, assertion that is being made without, not overtly, right? It's either dog whistle or subconsciously being being uh, put forward, and then somehow, and at the same time, somehow that a disconsciousness of racialized experiences somehow leaves you more able to make an impartial decision or a law or legal or evidence-based decision. Uh, I think both of those things are problematic. And what you have said has brought both of those yet again to the forefront. I think these are excellent points.
2: I think if you're willing to say, hey, if you think that people who are Black deserve to ha- to live, if you think that, then you can't serve on this jury, what's What's the next thing they're going to ask? Th- that question and to your point, Anthony is like, oh, you have the empathy for other people. You can't sit on. That's how I see it.
0: There's some important pieces um, within that, and I think you know at center point of the question, at least as I see the uh, the uh, the judge in this case, um, you know, putting forward at least in word is that what they're trying to get to the bottom of: can you be impartial? Can you? do what our legal system is asking you to do. And that is to make a judgment based on the evidence here. And that somehow this, this jury selection process is supposed to weed out whether or not your ability does that. And I think what a lot of folks are reacting to is the fact that at least from my black consciousness, you know, standpoint of where where I'm at, those questions don't tell you that those questions don't have, don't seem to have any bearing on your ability to be impartial um and that's that's where i see some disconnect is, in terms of motivation
3: let me let me add you know with as a person who has gone to trial as a person who has done jury selection there's a ton of strategy that gets deployed in the questions that are asked and i want to lift up an example of the things that you uh, uh, something that halie had made me think of so there was a united states supreme court case from 2016 Uh, the accused person's name was Miguel Angel Pena Rodriguez. It was a case out of Colorado. And Mr. Rodriguez was charged with three different counts of sexual assault. He was found not guilty on two. He was found guilty on one. And in the kind of post-conviction investigation, they asked a juror why they voted guilty. And the juror said, I think he did it because he's Mexican. And Mexicans take whatever they want. That's what the juror said about why they voted guilty. Now, when we look at that quote, and I'm I'm pretty sure I got it verbatim. When we look at that quote, there's no reference to testimony that was given. There's no reference to evidence that was given. Like clearly this this juror's biases and prejudices towards Mexican-Americans influenced the way that they voted in that case. So then we have to ask the question, how do we voir dire for that? How do we ask questions that reveals that bias? because it is unpopular and taboo to be racist in this country at least it used to be it's at least overtly <laughs> overtly right <laughs> you can't you can't get up there and ask who has a prejudice against mexican americans I mean, you can ask it but no one in the in the context of a of a jury and you're in a room full of people you never met before you're in front of a judge you're in front of a prosecutor and defense attorney no one is going to say oh yes i have a bias against Mexican-Americans. So then strategically, you have to think, what questions can I ask so that I can get some type of hint or suggestion as the lawyer in the case that this person actually might have prejudices towards the person that I'm representing. So you could ask a question, how many of us are against the border wall in Mexico? Or how many of us are in favor of the border wall that's supposed to be built for Mexico? And thinking how you can get somebody to reveal something that's valuable for your perspective as an attorney which doesn't immediately allow them to see what you're looking for. It's a lot of gamesmanship There's a lot of strategy and cases can be won or lost in jury selection.
2: I think one thing that we should also talk about is, is how this relates to, to the importance of voting and uh, voter suppression. Right. And this issue of voter suppression, because, um, Will, could you, I I, I didn't really know any of how juries got selected. I just thought once you were a citizen and, you know, you have a social security number or whatever, you can get called. That's exactly
0: uh, what I thought, too.
2: Right. Until I saw Will's video. So, Will, could you tell us how voting relates to how people become jurors in the first place?
3: Certainly. So in the in the context of um, at least Minnesota, there are three main lists that are used to summon jurors. The first is a, is a, a a list from the Department of Motor Vehicles, a list from voter registration, and a list of state ID holders. So if you are not registered to vote, if you don't own a car or you don't have a state ID, then your name isn't on one of those lists to be summoned. But you raise a good point, Haley, is that the way that we summon jurors actually have nothing to do with the qualifications to be a juror. So in in, in Hennepin County, and this is from the Minnesota Judicial Branch website, in Hennepin County, to be a prospective juror, you must be a United States citizen, a resident of the county that the case is going to trial in, at least 18 years old, able to communicate in the English language, and physically and mentally capable of serving on the jury. And we think about those qualifications. Well, why do we use voter registration lists? Why are we using DMV lists? Why are we using state ID lists when they don't neatly track those qualifications? And I would argue that when when you don't cast that inclusive net, you're excluding a lot of people who otherwise would be eligible to serve on that jury.
0: Whoa, wait, 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 wait. Okay, again, you're blowing my mind here. So we use voter registration, we use those three qualifications, but on our own <laughs> it's county statute, at least in Hennepin County, the county already has all that information for all of its residents and does not need those three um, things that are used for... So, so do you have any insight as to why people... Uh, have moved to use and include voter registration? Or is that something that's that's carried over from this past of trying to, uh, uh, of race-based kind of legal and jury selections? I mean, where how do we get to using these things that we don't need to use it all anyway?
3: So there's, there's a historical relationship and just kind of tradition of using voter registration lists, largely because we have to remember that there was a point in this time that you only had, in this country, point in time in this country where you only had the right to vote if you were, A white property-owning male. Right. Right. And that status gave you certain privileges. It gave you the privilege to right to vote, and it also gave you a privilege to sit in judgment of others on a jury. And so the originations of the access to the ballot box has then correlated and has been wedded to the access to the jury box. So the notion of using voter registration has been a list that's been used, you know, for for forever, for for the longest time. But when we only use voter registration, we have to think about all the issues that get lifted up when an election is going on, about how there's uh, unequal access to the ballot box or the distance it takes to get to an actual ballot box or the not having access to be able to register to vote, or if you change an address, how that influences all those other things. The problems that we can articulate with voting can be applied to access to the jury box as well.
0: See, that that is a, an, an amazing connection, um, and especially investigating our own practice of why we even use something in the first place. And I'm hearing you also say that then that exposes our jury selection process to political whims. If there's, um, you know, if there's a huge cultural shift, does that mean that the jury pool then for that year, well... I guess it's, it's voter registration. So you don't lose your, you know, if you don't vote in a certain election, you're not unregistered. So like, you know, I, I guess that's, that's, I guess that's... but
3: that's... you're, but you're onto something there, Anthony, because if you are registered to vote on the North side of Minneapolis, and then you move to, uh, you know, Hennepin Avenue or like you, you move and you didn't change your registration, you're still registered to vote, but you're not going to receive that jury summons mm-hmm. because they're going to send it to your old address. And so, keeping your voter registration active, if that's how they're getting your name and address, uh, is gonna ensure that you get a jury summons. But we don't need to be using these lists at all. I and mean, you can use them, but they can't be the only ones you can use. You should use voter registration, DMV records, state ID, but you should supplement it with utility bills, tax assessor bills, child support payor list, child support payee list, right? Hennepin County and municipalities have access to utility lists, and so when you the best practice is to use as many lists as possible that can get you to a high uh, cat, like a 90 percent, 95 percent wide net where you're actually reaching the majority of the people in your county. So that is representative. But when you only use state ID, voter registration and DMV records, you actually exclude a lot of people who otherwise would be eligible.
2: And I think it just goes to show how interconnected all these issues are. Right. These issues are not. um Siloed off from each other, you know. When we when right. we see voter suppression, it's it's not only because people don't want people of color to be able to vote as easily for their political this or that, but it's also keeping what they feel like as as the norm, which is keeping us off of the the list to be called as jurors. But also, uh, these judges are yes appointed to begin with, but then they're up for reelection. And, and and so and that is all about voting too. So get out the vote, so you're able to vote for these judges who are in your county and making these these decisions, uh, and also being able to be on the um, a juror in those situations as well.
1: A couple of years ago, two three years ago, we had another trial, huge trial, with uh, another member of our community, and also a, a in a acquaintance of uh Anthony's uh Philander Castillo, who was um who was as far as I was concerned executed uh for having a broad nose uh, if i remember correctly the police officer pulled him over because he noticed he had a broad nose and fit the des- that fit the description of someone who had apparently robbed a, a a convenience store earlier in the day um which was absolutely incredible the fact that he could see a broad nose from his squad car. But Philando ended up dead. That police officer was found innocent, right? So that to me speaks of of, uh, the high bar that's set in order to convict police officers of wrongdoing when they kill us.
3: Police shooting cases are are viewed differently than any other type of criminal trial. Like if, if, if your average citizen is accused of killing somebody, they aren't given the same kind of uh, benefit of the doubt that police officers are given. To your point, I want to also, and it's, a, it's very sad that we have so many examples, but if we think about the case, the Botham John case, or Botham Jean who was killed in Dallas by an uh, officer by the name of Amber Geiger, Right. she walked into Bosham John's home and shot and killed him in his home, and she was found guilty by a Dallas jury, and I think she was sentenced to to ten, to, I think to ten years. So in that instance, I wouldn't call that jury nullification. Like from my perspective, the system actually worked in that case. But look at the difference. It it, it took somebody dying in their own home without even having a lawfully owned weapon, right? Like that, that's what it took, but what's the difference between that and Philando Castile? And you mentioned the note about the broad nose. And so for nerds like me who know a lot about implicit bias, the reason w- there's a lot of significance in describing the broad nose, we think about the implicit association test. we think about implicit biases and it represents the majority of Americans have an implicit association between black folks and criminality. We then know that implicit biases can be heightened with stereotypical Afrocentric features. And so when we look at what are stereotypical Afrocentric features, we think about locks as a hairstyle, we think about facial hair, we think about having a broad nose, we think about darker skin. And so when we heard through that, I think it was either a radio run or a dispatch recording, when the officer talks about that broad nose, I immediately thought, okay, his implicit biases were clearly at work automatically viewing Philando Castillo as a threat without even having a conversation with him. And then I know this, is, this isn't where you were going, but we have, to, we have to call it out. Why is it, how is it possible that somebody can be in their vehicle committing no crime whatsoever and is killed when compared differently, when police officers are pursuing somebody who has just shot up a church in South Carolina or has just shot up a massage parlor in Atlanta, when they're pursuing that individual who they know has just committed murder, and that person gets taken to Burger King, or that person gets taken in without a scratch on them. Like, we literally have two justice systems, and we have to name that.
0: I, I love that as we talk, we, see, we can see the interconnectedness, not just of past, patterns coded language and institutional practices which is kind of the ethos of how we engage around counter stories but um the interconnectedness of these concepts you know when we talk you talk about um we have two systems for two different folks you know unfortunately we have um our most recent example of this um for the shooter that went on a on a shooting spree in atlanta on asian businesses right and so this the, the asian and asian crimes have been uh, Asian. Yes. Asian women, particularly. Um, and you know, this is, this is during a whole year where our rhetoric at the national level, um, from our nation's leader for, for so long uh, had been spurring on a whole lot of this racial animus and, and hate crimes on Asians skyrocketed and, 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 and it's hugely problematic. And we see yet again, that, um, the, Understanding of these two systems, which has been screamed and addressed and called out by people of color for years, by people of color and in indigenous communities for years, continues to require the bloodshed, the, 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 the very public, to your point about, about both Jean or Jean, um, it requires the bloodshed and the very public um, violence against, these community, against our communities in order for consciousness to be gained. It's not enough for us to just call it out and show the patterns and make the best legal arguments possible, the best social arguments, the best moral arguments. And yet we seem to only have change when we die and when our blood is shed. And this is some problematic patterns.
2: I think it, it, it speaks to people thinking, um, you know, sometimes when I when I talk about racism against Asian Americans, and this is probably before COVID, uh, A lot of people are just like, you guys don't experience racism. You know, you can't, until I give them very specific examples, it's as if they don't believe that these are things that we experience. Like microaggressions. When I try to explain microaggressions, people are like, I don't think that really happens. You know, especially like liberal white people are like, I don't think that happens on a daily basis. And it's like, we have to somehow pimp out our, our suffers and our, our, you know, the things that we go through to try just to get them to understand.
1: Hey, Anthony, I was just going to say that, um, to comment on what you had just said is, is that I kind of beg to differ mm. because it doesn't spark change. Mm. It sparks That's awareness because we haven't had change yet. And, and so I, and I think that, I think that just having this discussion on how upsetting just the jury selection for this this trial has been and um you know again we see these we see these different forces these different variables at play and um you know because how many of us you know i it's just it it it's it gets so frustrating to to sit back and witness the dominant culture again as it goes through these um through their process to seek these individuals on 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 the jury knowing the you know the potential the potential um significance of this decision you know i think i i i commented uh last week um in our previous recording how how I have not allowed myself to emotionally get involved with this trial, because of, I, you know, the, the emotional toll it took um, when uh, Philandro Castile's killer was found innocent. I mean, that, you know, on top of repeatedly seeing white police officers set free after killing members of our communities. And, um, and so I purposely have not invested myself in this entire process. I haven't watched the news. I haven't been paying close attention to the jury selection, uh, purposely because I just am, uh, you know, the trauma from the last one, I'm still working my way through that. And, and, uh,
2: Don is is part of that is part of that also because like I haven't really been watching it very much either because I feel like there's nothing we can do at this point. Like I'm watching it and kind of feeling useless.
1: I don't. Know.
2: Like something's just gonna make me mad and then I'm gonna be mad about it all day. But it, like uh,
1: you know, I, I what yeah. Can I, do? I mean it's it's not that I feel useless. I I guess it's it's a protective, it's a protective thing that I've kind of put in place. Kind of a self care. So that, so that if this if this person is found innocent at the end of all of this, that it just won't take everything left in me and just scatter it to the horizon. I it, it's kind of a self care, and I and
2: not getting your hopes exa- up. And
1: I don't know how many other individuals in our communities are feeling like this, but
2: I am for sure.
0: And and it's prevalent. Um, we 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 are. Um, you know, we do. I'm I'm part of another podcast that is that is reflecting and checking in with community members on this specific point, Don. Um, and Lee, to your point that you brought up earlier around having to constantly prove your experience in order to validate it when the data is there, the 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 patterns are there. Like like how much more public can we get? you know how much more more evidence can you get for this um for for reality being true and i think there there's two things that we're finding to your points that yes people are staying distant they're wanting small recaps just to see say, say i'm abreast of what's going on but every single thing that shows these patterns that will has been talking about that we continue to talk about is another indicator that 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 this is going to go like the past has gone and that is is, is absolutely a self that, that self-protection is absolutely at play. And, and, but, but one of the things that um, I'm also hearing in this conversation though, is that we have some areas that we can focus on. Like if I have to sit back at some point, I'm going to have to make my roadmap to move because we, as communities, we move. Like we, we, it's not that we stop working and stop pushing and all of that. We take moments for self-care, but we, we have a, history, just like the history of of white supremacy and and racism in the United States, also have a history of pushing back and moving the tide and moving the needle. And so one of the things that comes up in that space is, you know, these these concepts of things that we didn't know about before. I didn't know how, to borrow the word useless from you, Don, or, or no, from Lee, I didn't know how how much we did not need voter registration rolls in the history of that in order to still and in fact as a it's it's a it can be a roadblock for casting a wide net for a representative jury. I didn't know about that. I didn't know that um, there are processes that we could utilize um, in terms of of um, of of how we sit on a jury <laughs> um, to 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 exercise when. We have taken a look at the evidence as, as you know, and as as a, as um, uh, non prejudicial jurors, and say I come to a very di- we come to a very different conclusion than what uh, the prosecution has done for all kinds of reasons. There, there's games and ships, like you said, have been played. I've sat in trials of family members where they have completely characterized my family member as a completely different human being than almost everybody else, including folks who who believe that they were guilty also had challenges and issues with how they were characterized in a court case. And it's swaying a jury for negative outcomes. I mean, it, I, you know, to know that a jury could say, Hey, we don't like how that went down. And we think that there's, uh, you know, extenuating circumstances that, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that that power existed. And so as, as much as I might self care to to protect from getting my hopes up, as you said, Lee, um, there's also something in my mind that's going, how can I, um, what what power can I exercise in this, especially given the fact that in this particular process, what we've seen is I have to prove that somehow my level of racial consciousness doesn't just wouldn't disqualify me, which I think is a dangerous sentiment from being, a, be, being objective and doing my job as a juror. Like these are some very important um, questions that I hold up right next to trying to protect my hopes, especially given uh, Philando Castillo. I remember, I remember the day, um, you know, we recorded Counter Stories not long after that verdict came out. And I saw the energy drain. I saw the frustration. Um, I had to turn my, I had to to, to to stop and take a moment and take a breath in that recording. And that was when we were still in studio. We could be together, right? Given what, what, what Will's brought to us in terms of juror selection and, and voting and how, um, how important it is to serve on juries, what, what are some, some concrete things that we can bring to our communities that we can, we, and, and things to raise, questions to raise, ideas to raise in terms of addressing this juror, select, this juror system that we have in the United States?
3: Well, thanks for that, Anthony. You know, I think we need to be critical of our criminal legal system in its entirety. And we have to understand uh, the opportunities we have influence over the criminal legal system, largely through the elections. So in Hennepin County, uh, judges are appointed, but then they're retained. So knowing what the judges have done over the last term, there should be some organization that is publishing that information to foster transparency and accountability. Our district attorneys hold the most power of influencing and changing our criminal legal system. So... uh, I don't, I don't know if they're elected in, in Hennepin County, but if the district attorney is elected, being aware of what that district attorney has done over the last term to foster transparency and accountability and understanding, right? If you were to ask your average person walking around the street, what does your district attorney do? They may not be able to tell you. What does the judge do? They may not be able to tell you. So thinking about, you know, this system, although it wasn't made for us, it is supposed to work for us. And we have to identify the opportunities to influence the way that it is operating, whether that means having progressive people run to be the district attorney to end mass incarceration, whether it means somebody running for judge to lead with values of empathy and equity and, and embracing notions of restorative justice. We have to dream bigger than what the system that has been given to us currently looks like. And unfortunately, right now, The access to do that is largely through the ballot box. I'm not saying that's the best way, but right now that's how we influence the design of our criminal legal system. It also takes supporting people to seek out that office that are willing to be change makers, people that are willing to be attacked for doing the right thing, because this ship has been operating in this direction for a quite long time, right? And to change the direction, It's gonna take a collaborative effort and we talk about our criminal legal system, at least reforming our criminal legal system is certainly a collaborative effort. And I want people to understand and walk away with, you don't have to be a lawyer, you don't have to be a judge, you don't have to be a state representative to influence and change the fairness of our criminal legal system. You can be a DJ, you can be a barber, you can be a teacher, you can be unemployed. But when you receive that jury summons in the mail, you don't know if you're showing up for a trial that's for somebody charged with possession of crack cocaine or somebody that's charged with killing George Floyd, right? So I want people to remember that when you get that summons in the mail, that is an opportunity to have access to power. The system has been designed to keep people of color from having access to power. So when you do get that summons in the mail, seize that power and seize that moment because we desperately need it.
0: I think that's a perfect summation. Um, and in the words of one of our great leaders, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. I want to thank you, Will. Will Snowden is the uh, founder of the Jur Project out of Louisiana. Um, this has been another episode of Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros Group and executive director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora.
1: I'm Don Eubanks, Associate Professor in the School of Social Work at Metropolitan State University and Cultural Consultant.
2: And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group, and a reminder that our website is finally live. So go to CounterStories.com.
0: And I'll let our special guest
3: Will Snowden, closing out from the Jura Project, look forward to seeing you all on a jury. This is
0: CounterStories. This program is a co production of the Counter Stories crew, the Other Media Group, and Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.